Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 37 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. We nearly didn't make it tonight. I don't know if we let people behind the veil, but it's um, we've had some... I don't even know what you'd call what's happened in the last hour or so. <laughs> I know it's been a, it's been a tough road to this point. Some massive technical <laughs> difficulties, and uh, I hope everyone enjoys this episode because it has been a slog, and we've just hit the record button. So <laughs> yeah, power outages and all sorts. So we're here and we're ready. <laughs> we are, yeah. Uh, we are very lucky enough to have some more uh, Patreon shoutouts this week, Chloe. And there's a couple of tongue twisters, so you know we'll take it easy on you when you're reading these out. Thank you. We know that names are not my strength, but I'll give it my best shot. So welcome and thank you so much to Catherine Mantura, Kim Purple and Baby Sam, Tina O'Leary, Roxanne Jolette, Alan Gera Ann, Sarah Anunziata, Kate Simpson, Gabe, Anastasia, and Melissa Wilson. There are still a few more catch-up mentions coming next week. Thanks so much to everyone for the support. Yeah, thanks everyone. Much appreciated. And I think you pretty much nailed all those, Chloe. Well done. So this episode will be out on Monday night, the 10th. uh, And at the end of this week on Friday, the 14th, it's Valentine's Day, which is generally a happy day. But the case we're talking about today, which occurred on Valentine's Day in 1994, is anything but, unfortunately. The origins of Valentine's Day can be traced right back to the days of the Roman Empire in 269 AD, where the day was connected to tales of Christian martyrs. It was originally a day of feasting, apparently. But in modern society, the day has morphed to take on a much different facade centred on the declaration of love. The day first became associated with romantic love in the 14th century, within the circle of Geoffrey Chaucer, when the tradition of courtly love flourished. In 18th century England, it grew into an occasion in which couples expressed their love for each other by presenting flowers, offering confectionery, and sending greeting cards known as valentines. One could contend that the day is now consumerism-centric and a goldmine for florists, restaurants, and chocolate companies, but that suggestion is, of course, very unromantic. 
So in an effort to remain sensitive but still manly, obviously, Chloe, I'm going to start today's case with a famous poem. Okay, poem. That sounds nice, but although a little weird since it's just you and I here and you're basically my brother, but continue. (laughs) We'll roll along. Here we go. The rose is red, the violet's blue, the honey's sweet, and so are you. Thou art my love, and I am thine. I drew thee to my valentine. The lot was cast, and then I drew, and fortune said, it should be you. On Monday the 14th of February 1994, Valentine's Day, In Gladesville, New South Wales, this poem and any other romantic notion were nowhere to be seen or heard when the Metro Fire Services were called out to number four Flagstaff Street at approximately quarter to eight in the evening. While many couples were undoubtedly stoking the fires of passion in the comfort of their own homes, this property, called Kerry's Oasis, was quite literally ablaze, with smoke billowing from the building. Firefighters kicked in the locked front door and proceeded to search inside for anyone that might be passed out from the smoke or fumes. In the lounge room, they located a woman. She was sitting on the couch, but she wasn't moving. She was dead. But not from the flames. There was no fire in the lounge room. Towards the rear of the house, firefighters discovered another woman. They dragged her down the hallway as flames licked up the walls at the back of the house The woman had suffered brutal injuries, and there was no doubt she was deceased. As the firefighters turned their focus back to extinguishing the flames, the police were called to attend what had turned from a residential fire to a double murder scene. The police arrived at Kerry's Oasis, This establishment was described as a relaxation centre that provided massage and reflexology to clients. In reality, I think that's a sugar-coated way to say that massages with happy endings were the primary services on offer. But with that said, how someone earns a quid is their business, we're not here to judge that. You could contend that such a service at a location like Kerry's Oasis would have been the perfect Valentine's Day for the right person. Unfortunately, that wasn't the result we're talking about here. It was a much more tragic end to an otherwise romantic day. So after the fire came under control, the police were able to get inside and take a look at what the fireys had reported. The first victim who police would observe was in the front room of the premises. She was lying on her side in a sleeping position and she'd been shot in the right-hand side of her neck and cheek and in her temple, the fatal shot so she'd been executed at close range. The second victim had seemingly made a break for it and made it to the room at the rear of the property, but had suffered a vicious attack thereafter when the killer had caught up to her. There was significant blood pooling around her body. She had a gunshot wound in her right eye and her throat had been cut. Her face had also suffered quite a brutal beating, which suggested to police that her killer may have had a particular disdain for her. It might have been personal. So the two victims had been shot point-blank with a 22 calibre firearm. 
but the perpetrator had fired off another three bullets, which were discovered in the walls and in a nearby humidifier. Aside from the rampant fire and gruesome murder scene, the place was also a mess, generally speaking. There'd clearly been some form of physical altercation or disagreement prior to the second victim being killed. There were groceries strewn about the place, tins of baked beans on the floor, blood on nearby newspapers, smearing on the hallway walls, and a water cooler that had been toppled over in this suggested struggle. Of particular interest, however, was a plastic nose piece from a pair of glasses. You know, the little uh, rubbery bit, Chloe, that sits the the spectacles on your nose? That bit. Yeah, I hate them. (laughs) (laughs) The two women were identified as 40-year-old Kerry Pang and 26-year-old Fatima Ozanol. Kerry had a six-month-old baby with her de facto partner, Mark Lewis, at the time, and she'd also had children from a previous relationship. So those kids had lost their mother which is a devastating blow at any age, let alone as young as they were. Kerry had started as a working girl for her partner Mark at his massage parlour in West Ride, and she'd worked her way up to finally having her own place, Kerry's Oasis. She had big designs on having a massage parlour mini empire of sorts. Sadly, that dream had been taken away from her. Fatima Ozanol, who commonly went by the name Nikki, also had a child as well, as I understand, and I read she'd recently returned from overseas and had some problems with an ex-boyfriend from Turkey. Information on her was quite hard to come by, unfortunately. Most sources tended to focus on Kerry being the proprietor, but the boyfriend angle was one police, in all likelihood, had to investigate early on. Post-mortems have confirmed that two murdered women were the victims of a frenzied attack in a Sydney massage parlour. The killer set out to destroy as much evidence as he could, but the flames did not spread quickly enough to hide the secrets of his horrific crime. A post-mortem has still managed to reveal that 40-year-old Kerry Pang and Fatima Ozanol, 26, were brutally murdered. Pang had been stabbed numerous times, her throat had been cut, um, and she had sustained a gunshot wound. Uh, Ozanol had been shot a number of times. Kerry's de facto Mark Lewis eventually arrived on scene and he completely lost it and broke down in shock. Mark simply couldn't believe it, couldn't wrap his head around what the police were saying had transpired. He collapsed on the footpath outside the house on Flagstaff after firefighters restrained him to stop him going inside. He was taken to the hospital thereafter and put under observation. Despite his convincing portrayal of a distressed partner who'd stumbled upon a life-altering tragedy that'd take most of us years of grieving to get over, police weren't 100% convinced. Detectives had a squeeze inside Mark's white Toyota Tarago, and behind the sliding door was a lever-action 22 rifle inside a case. The case was slightly open, but police could see what appeared to be bloodstains. So this was interesting and suspicious. Here they had Lewis, who knew the location and occupants well, and he's in the area with this firearm putting on an Academy Award-winning performance. But there could have also been a very simple and understandable reason for these things, and Mark might have been quite genuine. We see this time and time again. People act very differently under extreme situations of stress and emotional turbulence, shock, etc. Still... Mark was the obvious first port of call for the police. We're going to play some interesting clips from Mark's interview with police now, 
where he explains having received a death threat made against Kerry at his parlour in West Ride and how he called Kerry to tell her and they caught up to discuss it. Then he dropped her off and went home. You're aware now, aren't you, that uh, Kerry and uh, the other girl, Nikki, um, uh, were murdered? They told me they were shot, yes. Do you have any knowledge about that at all? Would you care to tell me what your movements were this afternoon after 5pm? As I mentioned to you before, I started watching news at 5 o'clock, and it's at 5 o'clock for 6 o'clock news, and probably 10 past quarter past 5, the phone went, so I turned the TV down. I picked it up and just my normal mind, and I said, um, VIP, can I help you? And the male voice um, said to the words, the effect, um, I'm going to kill your girlfriend. She doesn't deserve to live her. something to that effect. And then went the receiver. And I said, oh, cricket, you know. Um, just a crank call, so I put it down. And I sat back. I went to put the TV back on. I felt funny in the stomach. Um, it bothered me when normally crank calls don't bother me. And it was the voice. And it, it put it like a, a sort of a chill down my back. It, I just didn't feel right. Uh, Mr. Laws, have you received any other similar phone calls to the one you received? Yeah. In the last 12 months, we probably had six to ten threats by phone. Some are male, some are female. Some people think I'm a bastard, some people think Kerry's a bitch, some people think, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, nasty people. Uh, He probably do too, but, you know, we're sweetie, just normal people trying to make money to pay the bills and keep ahead, that's all. And I said, mate, they threatened you. I told them what was said. And she said, oh, I haven't heard anybody, I don't know anybody who, you know. Because um, over the years we have lots of problems, girls and husbands and all that, but nothing major. So um, she said, oh, well, I'll ring her Dick Lesbie. And she rang the ride detectives, because she had Dick's number with her. And uh, they said, he's not here, he's a chat with And she said, he's not there, but I've left him as he's on his hands, okay. Drive down the glades one, and just as you come down the glades of one pit where I think there's a little shop there. But they stopped and went in the shop, and she walked around and she got a lap of bread. And she picked up a couple of tins of something. Um, she got in her car, I got in my car, we drove around the corner, parked in the car park, we walked to the Glazeville door. You recall what time that was that you uh, got through the door and left? The phone call came probably about quarter past five. She was probably up there about half past five, quarter to six, something like that. So we'd have been down there at six, quarter past. Would you explain to me or describe to me that firearm? I think it's a Winchester, 22. I said, no, you don't really want to write that was it, so I just left it in the car, threw it on the floor and back again. Could you tell me how many .22 caliber rifles you owned? I couldn't really have done it. Probably three or four or five, I'm not 100% certain. So they asked Mark about the rifle at the end there, and he basically said that it was Kerry who wanted it for protection, considering this death threat, and he talked her out of it, and then threw it into the back of his car. And he couldn't recall exactly how many .22s he owned, three, four, or five. Ballistics tested eight expelled cartridges that had been found at the murder scene, and they checked these against all of the guns that Mark Lewis owned. They knew these bullets had come from one gun, but they weren't from any of Lewis's guns. All eight that he owned didn't match with the ballistics, and subsequently, these guns were eliminated as potential murder weapons. And while eight guns seems like a lot, and it is a lot, don't get me wrong, 
I think we have to factor the environment and potentially clientele that Mark and Kerry might have had at their places of business sometimes. And this aspect had to be considered by police. They spoke with some disgruntled clients who may have felt aggrieved in some way and some former workers who could have had an axe to grind. But all checked out and all were cleared on solid alibi evidence. There was also the phone call Kerry had made in the time before her murder to a local detective she'd had assistance from before, Dick Letchford, who was mentioned in the clip before. Dick Letchford, call me urgently, 018 257 657. It's Kerry Pang. Thank you. She got one bloke that has been coming backwards and forwards now for about six months. We call him Craig Flintstone because he's got a square head. He used to be one of our customers at Paramount. He roughed up one of our girls at one stage. He is notorious. He rings Kerry and me three or four times a week. Who's on there? He disguises his voice. You know, uh, with all this sort of shit. Right. And we got a, a problem last week with a girl uh, when she was leaving, and uh, she threatened Kerry and myself. So Kerry was obviously worried about something, and Mark seemed to think this Fred Flintstone character or this agitated girl who'd threatened them both might be worth looking at. One thing that police knew was there were some inconsistencies with Mark Lewis's story that warranted further probing. And this put him under the microscope. His times were out by about one hour, and that put him in the vicinity at the time of the murders, not back in West Ride like he kept saying. According to phone records, Kerry was in West Ride with Mark, as he said, but not at 5.45pm. This was at 6.45pm. This was confirmed by an employee at Mark's parlour who'd seen Kerry too, not just the phone records. Mark advised he was back in West Ride at approximately 7pm, when in fact it was much closer to 8, so he was telling the story about an hour earlier than it all really occurred. It did all occur, but the time was out. Then the police discovered that their relationship might not have been quite as rosy as Mark had been making out. Would you care to tell me firstly about your relationship with Kerry Payne? Kerry and I lived together, you know, the fact our relationship. We've had a de facto relationship now on and off for four, four years. I broke up my marriage three and a half years ago after 32 years, and during the last three and a half years, we spent 99% of that time together. I think a week here and a week there, we might have been apart. And even when we were living apart, we are still sleeping in the same bed, going to each other's house. But, turns out, according to those who knew the couple, Mark Lewis had some huge issues with jealousy, alleging that Kerry had been unfaithful more than once. The couple also had some persisting financial and professional problems. Meanwhile, further testing was underway on some of the crime scene items. Forensic pathologist Vivian Bilby did tests on the blood on the rifle bag, along with some of Mark Lewis's clothing, which had been bagged up upon request. And the blood on both Mark's shorts and the rifle bag matched, and matched Kerry's DNA profile. On his shirt, however... We had a different story, an evolving story that would further complicate matters. There were two sources of DNA on Mark's shirt. In addition to his own and Kerry's, there was another unidentified DNA source. While Mark was certainly in the crosshairs for further scrutiny, there could have been legitimate reasons for the stains being there from an event prior, and they were partners, so his or her DNA being on one another in this regard wasn't enough to completely implicate him, especially with this second unknown DNA sample being present. 
So there's a foul smell around Lewis, sure. Kerry's family are obviously coping with her loss, as were Fatima Ozanol's, but there wasn't enough to charge Mark Lewis at this time, as much as police thought him likely to be involved. Other leads, such as Fatima's boyfriend, disgruntled clients, etc., all petered out, and the case went stagnant for about two years. Later, the New South Wales Police Force had a task force codenamed Yandy in full swing. This task force was examining a number of unsolved murders across the state. And they had an informant, a corrupt former police officer named Alan Thomas, who'd been passing them on stories about a guy he'd been speaking with at his local pub. This bloke's name was Lindsay Rose. Lindsay had allegedly been bragging about committing a double murder on Valentine's Day said he'd been paid $20,000 by the woman's husband to carry it out. And this husband's name turned out to be Mark Lewis. He and Lindsay were mates, had known each other for a number of years. Rose had begun working for Mark as a private investigator turned security guard and debt collector. Lindsay Rose had a small criminal record. They knew a little about him, but not a lot. So the police, armed with this new information went to have a chat with the previously cooperative Mark Lewis to try and find out more about this Lindsay Rose and the allegations they'd heard from their informer. But Mark Lewis wasn't having a bar of it this time around. He refused to be interviewed. The previously chatty massage parlour owner had now clammed up completely. So police had to re-examine their evidence. They went back to the second bloodstain on the shirt, wondering if this was Lindsay's. Turns out he had a very rare blood group, AB, RH negative. Only 1.5% of the Australian population have this. But they didn't find any AB, RH negative blood on the shirt. So they went back to their informant, Alan Thomas, and he said he'd actually gotten the gun from Lindsay Rose previously, but had since sold it. He recalled who he sold it to as well, so that was very handy. Police obtained a search warrant and got this gun to test and attempt to link it to the Valentine's Day murders. It was a 22 target pistol with a homemade silencer, very similar to the murder weapon used on Valentine's Day two years earlier. But testing was inconclusive. They couldn't definitively link it. So the blood and the ballistics weren't giving the police what they needed. They had to look elsewhere. Now, if we recall... There was a plastic nose piece from a pair of glasses found at the scene. The police knew that these weren't from Mark Lewis because his glasses were intact upon interview and presumably any other pairs he had were accounted for. But police now knew that Lindsay Rose wore glasses too, from their informer. So police began interviewing optometrists in the area near where Lindsay lived. And lo and behold, three days after the double murder... Lindsay had dropped his glasses into his local Burwood optometrist for repair and also ordered a replacement lens for his Alfa Romeo spectacles. The optometrist had this detailed on a work card that Lindsay had actually signed off on. So it was a little thing, but adding up. It was enough to bring Lindsay in for a chat at least. In strolled this gruff and straight-talking Lindsay, redhead with glasses, arms folded, The guy was apparently involved in brothel ownership and had worked in the past as a PI and a fitter and turner. 
Lindsay denied any involvement in the Valentine's Day murders, so the tale their informer had given them was complete garbage. He knew of the murders and the Lady Carey, but Lindsay pushed the culpability back to the informer, Alan, along with another accomplice he threw into the mix, a young bloke named Donnie. While the police were pretty confident that their informer wasn't involved, as Lindsay was suggesting, they were wondering who this Donnie character was. Was Lindsay throwing an intentional red herring out there, or had he let a critical detail slip? They couldn't tell at this point, and Lindsay was released after this chat, but police kept an eye on him and an ear to the ground. Turns out Lindsay Rose used to get around nicknaming himself the mechanic, and he'd styled this, we'd come to know, from a 1972 Charles Bronson film of the same name, The Mechanic, and the title was used in this film as a euphemism for an assassin, which Bronson played. So Rose was styling himself as a hitman or gun for hire, and further bragging, just like Bronson had in the film, that he'd had an apprentice with him at this double murder. Was Donnie this apprentice? But in the midst of police looking into this, their informer passed on some even more startling and chilling information about Lindsay Rose's beer-swilling bragging at the pub. He allegedly implicated himself in a number of other murders too. The first was a couple in West Sydney whose surname began with K, and he said between chuckles something along the lines of, I hope they enjoyed their oysters. Police sifted through state library articles. There were apparently a lot of unsolved double murders back at this time, and they were looking for anything that would link up with this bit of oysters information. So it sounded like a bit of a needle in a haystack type deal, at least a needle in a a hay bale anyway. But they found something. The 1984 murders of Bill Kavanagh and Carmelita Lee had been unsolved for 12 years. This was some 10 years before the Valentine's Day murders. They found a news article about this crime, then went to the police files and back through this investigation. Sure enough, they discovered a crime scene photo and in this photo, in the hallway, was a smashed bottle of oysters on the floor. It was actually two bottles of oysters, one smashed and one intact. This hadn't been released to the media at the time, nor had the details of their death. Bill ran a trucking business and was said to have been involved in some capacity with the Calabrian Mafia. He had been shot four times, once in the forehead between the eyes. Rose had allegedly said to Alan Thomas that the shot had hit the guy between the eyes, and he seemed really proud of his marksmanship. Carmelita had been shot four times, also between the eyes. So there were a lot of parallels with the Valentine's Day murders in terms of the MO. But the most interesting part of all, Chloe, was that there was blood samples found and maintained from under Bill Kavanagh's fingernails. Now, obviously, there was no DNA back at this time, but they could retest and try to blood group the sample. They did, and it came back as ABRH negative, Lindsay Rose's rare blood group that only 1.5% of the population had. So Lindsay Rose is all of a sudden looking like a larger villain than initially thought here. Police really had Mark Lewis in the crosshairs, and that evolved into Lindsay being a gun for hire potentially in the Valentine's case a petty crook who'd maybe jumped at the chance for a large cash injection. But now our murder tally had doubled, and this bloke had some seriously convincing links. So we have to switch gears at this point, Chloe, and ask, who was Lindsay Rose? 
He was born Lindsay Lehman to his folks, Ron and Glenda. Their relationship didn't last long, unfortunately, and Glenda was 18 and single by the time Lindsay was born. The pair lived with Glenda's mother, Ethel, and stepfather, Jack, and Glenda had six younger siblings. Maxie, technically Lindsay's uncle, was just two years older than him, and he'd be a key figure in Lindsay's childhood, but not in a good way. When the pair were young ratbags, squabbling as kids do, Maxie pushed Lindsay out of the window one time. And while that tale I read didn't allude to this explicitly, uh, but being in the true crime world that we are, Chloe, and having an idea of where Lindsay Rose is going to end up, one has to wonder, did he suffer some kind of head trauma at this young age? So they were living in Enfield when Lindsay started school at age five and he went to South Strathfield Public. Maxie and his mates picked on Lindsay, beat him up, rolled him for his lunch money, threw rocks at him and told lies to get him in trouble. All until Lindsay got bigger than his uncle and one day when they stood in the lounge room awaiting a caning from his mum for something Maxie had lied about, Lindsay punched the crap out of his uncle. Maxie never tried it on again. And that was the day Glenda learned Lindsay had inherited two key things from her, her red hair and her scorching temper. Ron, Lindsay's biological father, visited infrequently. Lindsay didn't even realise who he was. He brought Lindsay a pack of lifesavers each visit, but the visit stopped when Lindsay was 16, when presumably Ron may have stopped making child support payments. Glenda dated a few men during Lindsay's childhood, Maury Pinfield, an earth mover, Eddie Bennett, an industrial laundromat worker, and Neville Bell, who was a police officer. Then she met a guy named Bill Rose, who was a toolmaker at Robert Shaw Controls in Burwood. They'd end up getting married, and Lindsay would go on to call Bill his pa. Bill would also be the first person to show Lindsay a firearm, a twenty-two. But the marriage wasn't all smooth sailing. Glenda drank a lot and was abusive and violent, and Bill clipped Lindsay around the ears a good amount. While finishing primary school at Mount Pritchard, Lindsay changed his surname to Rose before going on to Bonnie Rig High. Here, academia was probably the furthest thing from Lindsay's mind as puberty kicked in, opening up the world to girls and troublemaking. He got into many scuffles and fights. There were even tales of threatening others with an iron bar. He had a close mate named Harry at one point, who he ended up falling out with over a girl. After Lindsay left school, he completed an apprenticeship as a fitter and turner before joining the New South Wales Ambulance Service in 1976, and he was notably one of the first responders at the Granville train disaster in 1977. He was said to be a real hero on this day, crawling into the wreckage and dragging people out, a real lifesaver not a measly candy version like his half-baked father used to bring him. By 1979, Rose had left the ambulance service and become a private investigator, surveilling cheating spouses and the like. His criminal career really took off after this. There was even talk of him having become entangled with the Calabrian Mafia. Down the track, he met a guy named Mark Lewis, who owned a string of massage parlours. Mark started giving Lindsay private investigation jobs, which morphed into debt collecting, security, changing locks on rentals, etc. Lindsay's criminal career escalated after this, as he became involved in more scuffles, brothels, guns, robberies, larceny, kidnapping, you name it, it became his job. 
One very interesting crime to note was on New Year's Day in 1983, when Rose and a few of his criminal cronies hijacked a semi-trailer containing cigarettes valued at $600,000 and held two of the truck drivers hostage for several hours. So that's the cliff notes on Lindsay Rose's life to this point. Campbell McConaughey wrote a book back in 2017 entitled The Fatalist, and it's got a whole lot more detail on Lindsay and his life. It's an award-winning novel too, I believe, won a Ned Kelly Award. So if you're keen for more detail after hearing this episode play out, go and get yourself a copy of that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Chloe, that brings us back to present day. The police now had Lindsay in their crosshairs for the 1994 Valentine's Day murders of Kerry Pang and Fatima Ozanol, and also for the 1984 double murder of Bill Kavanagh and Carmelita Lee. Rose had been cut loose, but the police were gathering more and more evidence, as we said. They've got the plastic bit from the glasses, alleged confession from an informant, and the matching blood grouping. Now, on the 4th of July 1996, they were surveilling Rose, when suddenly the crafty street thug gave police the slip. Lindsay had cleverly gone into a local arcade and visited a hairdresser. The police didn't follow him in there to maintain some distance, remaining discreet. Meanwhile, Lindsay had the back and sides taken off, and he got the hairdresser to dye it from the flaming red colour it was to black or dark brown. Like the wily fox that he was, Lindsay also removed his glasses and brought contact lenses. A short time later, Lindsay Rose walked out of the arcade a completely different man in the visual sense and walked straight past the surveillance team who thought he was still inside. So Rose was on the run. He drove from Sydney, New South Wales to Adelaide in South Australia and got work there using his original surname of Lehman. Police couldn't believe that they'd lost this slippery gypsy. They couldn't find him, hard as they tried. So they went back to digging for this apprentice, and they found a guy named Ronald Waters who went by the name Donnie. They went through exhaustive investigations to find this guy, probably worried that if they didn't, the repercussions for losing Lindsay in the first place would likely be massive. Donnie was a tattoo artist and a bit of a bottom feeder. He was also strapped for cash. They interviewed him, and basically he folded like Cambo's deck chair and confessed. Donnie then obliged and took the police on a tour of the house in Gladesville, which has since been a financial planning business and now an audiologist, if Google Maps 2017 is still accurate. And Donnie explained that he had no idea Lindsay was going to murder anyone. Donnie said he was offered $500 to simply get them in the door, as Lindsay's face was well known. They expected just Kerry to be there, but Fatima was there too. Okay, um, we walked from the car across to here, 
Um, I walked up to the door. When you say we, who do you mean by Me and Lindsay Rose. Um, I walked up to the door and I knocked on the door and Lindsay was standing about there. What happened then? Then I walked inside because she let me inside and she was talking about the massage and whatnot. What was Lindsay doing? He was still standing there. And then Lindsay pushed past me and he forced her up here and into this room here. Um, and there was a lounge um, and he sat her just there. I walked over to the window and looked out the window and there was two people, a man and a woman, walking across the road to the direction of the house. And then I heard a, like a, um, a sort of noise and around and he'd shot the girl on the chair. The man that was with her walked out with a rifle aimed at me and oh, I didn't know if he was going to shoot me or not, so I punched him. And then I tackled him and sat on him as he was laying on the ground here. Lindsay um, got up me for, for hitting the bloke and for sitting on him because he was saying that the bloke that was on the ground was paying Lindsay to do the job. Um, and from what I heard, um, I'd, he was um, either the boyfriend or the husband of the, the second girl. Here's Donnie's full retelling of how this all went down later on in court records. He and Lindsay met at the Burwood RSL at around 6pm on Valentine's Day, although the meeting was not pre-arranged. Lindsay asked Donnie if he would help him out, and Donnie agreed. They went from the RSL to Lindsay's house, where they got into his vehicle and then drove to Gladesville. Lindsay spoke to someone on his mobile phone during the drive. Lindsay parked his car and they went into the premises. Donnie knocked on the door, which was answered by Fatima, while Lindsay hid with his back against the wall. Fatima let Donnie in, and Lindsay followed him with a pistol and started yelling at Fatima, demanding to know the whereabouts of Kerry, to which Fatima responded that she was at the doctor's office with her husband. Lindsay then took the phone off the hook and directed Fatima into another room, while telling Donnie to stand at the window and keep a lookout for any arrivals. Subsequently, Donnie looked out of the window and saw a man and a woman walking away from two vehicles towards the premises. Donnie informed Lindsay of this, and then Lindsay shot Fatima in the head. On Lindsay's direction, Donnie went into another room and hid. From this position, he could see into the reception area of the premises. Lindsay went into another room. Donnie heard the door open and heard Kerry calling out to Fatima, Kerry moved down the hallway as though she had been pushed or she was running. Kerry saw Lindsay and said words to the effect that there was no need for him to be there, that everything had been settled. Lindsay responded by saying that it was too late, that he had shot Fatima and that she would have to be killed as well. Donnie then left the room in which he had been hiding and noticed the man who he had seen coming into the premises with Kerry, Mark Lewis, in the doorway of one of the rooms holding a rifle. Donnie struck him disarmed him and tackled him to the ground. According to Donnie, Lindsay then said, don't hurt the man, he's paying for the job. Lindsay and Kerry struggled over Lindsay's pistol. Donnie went to help Lindsay by striking Kerry to the face three times. Kerry fell to the floor, then got up and ran down the hallway towards the back of the house, while Lindsay picked up the silencer that had come off the pistol. Mark said to Lindsay, hurry up and get it over and done with on more than one occasion, and Lindsay followed Kerry towards the rear of the premises. When Lindsay returned, he told Donnie and Mark to leave as the house was on fire. 
The three men then left the premises, Donnie being told to leave the main door open to enable the fire to spread more effectively. Mark carried his rifle in a rifle bag. They walked towards his van, a Tarago, and he placed the rifle bag in the midsection of the van. Lindsay advised him to go home and wait for the police to contact him and then to feign a heart attack on being told of Kerry's death. Lindsay and Donnie then left in Lindsay's car. So this was why they couldn't pin Mark Lewis back in the original 94 investigation. This was the missing link, tying together those little tidbits circumstantially that the police had against him. But they had an eyewitness now. Still, police felt it wasn't enough to just bring Mark Lewis down. They wanted Lindsay and a confession from him that Mark had indeed hired him. But they still needed to find Lindsay Rose. And they had a plan to ferret him out. So going back to this police informant, Alan Thomas, who'd given oh so much juicy detail about Lindsay Rose, he advised that Lindsay had once lived at a place in South Wentworthville and had commented that the subfloor was a good place to hide a body or to conceal certain illicit things. So police went and dug the place up on the 9th of April 1997 and put all of this out to the media. It attracted a large amount of media attention, this dig of the house slab and subfloor, and the police also released a picture of Lindsay in the press too, so his mug was out there for the country to see now. The dig was ordered by a special police task force, Yandy, which is investigating up to eight unsolved murders in Sydney and on the north coast. Police want to question 42-year-old Rose over the killing of two women inside a massage parlour at West Ride three years ago. At this stage, I don't really want to speculate on, on uh, what we expect to find inside the, uh, uh, the subfloor area. The police found nothing at the dig, but the news report had worked. They got a call tipping off Lindsay as being in Adelaide. But what if he'd seen the report? Ten months on the run by this point, and he'd already given the police the slip once. Could he do it again? Would this light a fire under his ass and see the police taking off on a wild goose chase across the Nullarbor? Well, it didn't come to that. They beat Lindsay to the punch this time, or more likely, I'm guessing, he just didn't see the news report. Adelaide Police's Star Task Force picked up Lindsay Rose the following morning as he arrived at work and took him in. Detectives Baker and Appleton got the interview duties with Lindsay and based on previous interactions with police and the fact that he'd escaped their surveillance team once before, they probably anticipated that he wasn't going to give them much. But here's how it went down when they first spoke to him about the murders of Bill Kavanagh and Carmelita Lee. Do you agree that uh, you were arrested uh, by South Australia Police at approximately 6.40am yesterday morning, being the 10th of April 1997? It was 5.40, but yes, I was. Oh, big pardon, 5.40am. Inspector Baker and I are making inquiries into the murders of an Edward Kavanagh and Carmelita Lee at Hoxton Park um, on or about the 20th of January 1984. Um, is there anything you can tell me about that? Yes, I did it. Okay. Now, your answer to me before was, I did it. What do you mean? Can you tell me what you mean by that? I went to the house there and showed him. All right. The Asian girl was there. And um, I tied her up and gagged her so she wouldn't make any noise and waited for Bill to come home. What happened when uh, Bill Kavanagh came home? He walked up to the front door, saw me standing in the hallway and stopped. And what happened then? Shot him. Where did you shoot him? If I remember correctly, I hit him there. 
And just describe that for me, where you mean there. Well, in the middle of the forehead. Okay, and what happened when you shot him? He uh, hit the deck. When he fell, he dropped two bottles of oysters and they smashed on the floor. So police were left with no doubt after this interview. Lindsay was direct, explicit, no emotion and coldly matter-of-fact. He corroborated every little piece of information they had and tied it all together with the bits that they didn't. The next day, they spoke to him about the Valentine's Day murders. I was the person involved in company with a fellow by the name of Donnie and I committed the murders. Why did you shoot Fatma Rosner? So she wouldn't cause any trouble. Did you realise when you shot her you could kill her? Yes. Did that cause you any problems? Yes. Why? Because she shouldn't have been there. What happened then? Kerry walked in the door, Mark was right behind her and he had a gun. Were you surprised to see Mark Lewis? Yeah, he's not supposed to be there. What happened then? A uh, big melee broke out. She was screaming, Mark was screaming, Kerry was struggling with me, Mark was struggling with me, and Donnie was struggling with everybody. <laughs> this struggle happened all the way down the hallway and we ended up in the back room. Did you do anything else to her? Yeah, I stabbed her. Why did you stab her? Because Mark was um, yelling and screaming that she's not dead, she's not dead. What happened then? I shot Kerry. When did you shoot her? In the eye, I think. When during the melee did your glasses get broken, do you remember? No, it was just a blur. I think they fell off and someone stepped on them or I stepped on them or something, I can't recall. Do you remember what part was broken? Yeah, later on, I had to buy a nose piece and um, I actually got... Your lenses made up. It was just the pressure from Mark. He said, you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And he upped the ante to 20,000. Um, that's when I decided to do it. And I just remembered something. I got the gun off Mark Lewis. There you go. Mark Lewis supplied me with the weapon. So Lindsay laid it all out for investigators with chilling detail and absolutely no remorse. A business transaction, if you will. He was then extradited to New South Wales and charged with all four murders. He later told investigators that he'd killed Bill Kavanagh in an act of revenge. Bill had apparently beaten up a mate of his years earlier. Carmelita was a witness, a loose end. Now police could do what they couldn't have done previously, and that was arrest Mark Lewis for the murders of Kerry Pang and her workmate, Fatima Ozanol. Now we get to the trial outcomes. Mark Lewis received life without the possibility of parole for Kerry's murder and 18 years for Fatima's murder. Evidence at his trial indicated that the motive for Kerry's murder was difficulties in their relationship and Mark's dissatisfaction with Kerry's line of work, which was also his line of work, so he's a jealous hypocrite, although I'm inferring he wasn't giving massages. But anyway, he knew what she did prior to their relationship, I guess is my point. But apparently Lindsay also had a reported hatred of Kerry, which explained why the attack on her was so up close and personal. I also read something during research about Kerry and Lindsay having had some form of relations in the past too. I didn't delve too much into that, considering both of their lines of work, but it's worth mentioning, I think. Fatima was not part of the murder plan and was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. But really, Mark's main problem with Kerry was that she was getting too big for her britches in his eyes, 
As said earlier, she was trying to make something of things. He was clearly a jealous and controlling type who didn't want her to have that opportunity and freedom, I think. Donnie pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact and was given and served 18 months of periodic detention. Lindsay Rose pleaded guilty to both of the double murders, four in total, that of Bill Kavanagh and Carmelita Lee in 1984, and ten years later, the Valentine's Day murders of Kerry Pang and Fatima Rosinol. But when it comes to the life and crimes of Lindsay Rose, the serial killer, Chloe, we're still not done here. He confessed to a fifth murder, for which he also received another life sentence. Lindsay confessed to breaking into the house of a wealthy businessman named Bill Graff in West Ride in January 1987, some three years after the Kavanaugh-Lee murders. Lindsay was intending to rob the place. Bill had some wealth, as we said, so presumably had assets that would have attracted the likes of Lindsay Rose. But Lindsay got a shock when he came across Bill's de facto partner at the premises, a lady by the name of Renette Holford. Lindsay stabbed her over 30 times with a screwdriver and a vegetable knife, and then he bound her and took off. Raynette later died from her injuries at the age of 45. So that's an extremely sad ending to a completely innocent person's life, and really highlights the sheer brutality and callousness of Lindsay Rose. Another factor to mention is that Bill Graff was actually the prime suspect in Renette's murder up until his death some years later. So that's another sad aspect to think that not only did he lose his partner in such a devastating way, but he was marred by this suspicion for his final days and was completely innocent. Lindsay's name also came up in connection with the disappearance of Max O'Malley. However, a coroner's report found that he died in Sydney in 1990 from complications connected to insulin. In 1998, Lindsay was convicted of another string of crimes he'd confessed to, conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, robbery, kidnapping, robbery whilst armed, malicious wounding, larceny, and supplying a prohibited drug. So he put it all out there and received more time for this, but in reality, he's never going to see the light of day again anyway. He's in Goulburn Jail's high-risk management unit, and he's been vocal while in prison, particularly with a notable disdain for the number of Islamic prisoners and prisoners converting to Islam, alongside being generally outspoken about unfavourable prison conditions. But that's it, Chloe. That's the case of the Valentine's Day murders of Kerry Pang and Fatima Rosinol. May they both rest in peace. And the twisted, unfurling story of serial killer Lindsay Rose, who took the lives of Bill Kavanagh, Carmelita Lee and Renette Holford. Our thoughts are with all of the victims' families. So paying someone to kill someone for you, to me, is a whole other kind of evil mixed with weak. Obviously killing anybody is terrible and even wanting to kill them is particularly horrendous, but there's something about the morals of a person that would hire a hitman that really irks me. Mark Lewis didn't support his spouse. He wanted her dead, but he didn't want to be involved in the actual act. That is so gross and despicable. I feel really bad for all the children in this case as well. So many young people without their mums. I hope they've been supported by other people around them and are doing okay now. I think you're going to cover this a bit more, Sean, but Lindsay Rose too. What led him to the life that he did and to kill all those people? 
the almost grandiose ideal he portrayed with the nickname of a movie character, but also clearly either mental health issues or something pretty deep going on that would lead him to kill for money. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think my thoughts will somewhat mirror yours to some extent, but uh, as you said, I'm just glad that Mark Lewis copped the right whack that he deserved. That cowardly, jealous piece of shit should have got life without parole, uh, and he did, so that's good. I do not like those controlling, manipulative types like this guy who try and keep their partners down as opposed to you know, empowering them to achieve their goals like a real man would. So uh, stuff him. May Cupid shoot an arrow into his ass every Valentine's Day until he's no longer with us. Lindsay Rose, he's spun me out a bit. You know, I think there was a whole lot of nature there that led him down the path that he ended up on. Something deep-seated. I mean, he had his ups and downs in life as a young man, don't get me wrong, but uh, a lot of people have that, and they don't go on to brutally slay five people in that fashion. So, as you sort of said too, Chloe, the saddest part is the kids uh, that these people had uh, who've had to grow up without their mothers. Kerry had children. Fatima too, it was reported. You know, the effects of brutal murders like this just spread so far and wide. It's like a like a shotgun blast, really, and that that's the saddest part for me. So my thoughts are with the uh, kids. I hope they've all gotten to a place that's as good as it can be considering what happened to their mums. And, uh, yeah, that's it for me, Chloe. Yeah, it's a sad one, that's for sure. So let's move on to our happy thoughts. So... I'm pretty much doing two this week, but one is what I'm going to say is a life hack because I've discovered something and I'm sure I haven't already said this before. I don't often get my nails done, but if you ever have the chance to do, you know, some self-care and go to a salon and get a manicure and a pedicure, get both. And what it means is that they'll sit you in that massage chair for both things. So they'll do your feet first and then you stay while the massage chair is rolling your back while they go and do your hands on the armchair. It is the best thing that has ever happened to me. (laughs) It is so fun and so relaxing. So um, anyone who's thinking about doing that, spend an extra $20, get both things done and you will not regret it. Um, But my actual happy thought is that I got – a tattoo touched up this week. Um, it, I have a flower on my arm and it was pretty faded um, and I got some things added to it. And the tattoo artist that I go to see, Olivia, she may listen to this or may not, but I'm going to fangirl over her because she's just one of those real sunshine people. I really like talking to her. She's really cool and I've just kind of been happy since I saw her. You know, she's one of those people that just makes you feel good about yourself and life. So I'm still riding that wave from there. So that's my happy thought. Very good. Very positive. And the <laughs> tattoos look, uh, look 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 great. The work yeah, thank you. Those. So congrats to you and to Olivia. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, what's your happy thought? Uh, so my happy thought is very basic, Chloe. Um, I had a hit of uh, nine holes with my brother-in-law uh, the other day, so that was nice. Got to try out the new golf course um, where we've moved to, so that was good, and I haven't had a hit for years, I think, since my Bucks party. So um, Really? Yeah, yeah. Was, oh, that's interesting. Good. We both we... sound so bougie and old with our hobbies, getting our nails done and playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? We, ju- but we just beat the rain, so that, like, yeah, that really just – cap things off nicely it's nothing better than just you know doing some sort of activity and then when you get home it just the clouds open up and 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 it all comes down it's like i timed that beautifully (laughs) it was like that meant it (laughs) 
If you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. And despite the sadness in today's episode, we do wish everyone a super happy Valentine's Day this coming Friday. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Absolutely. Have a great day, guys. Thanks again for listening and for your support, and we will catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.